I'm delighted to be here. I'm very happy to have been asked, and I'm I'm glad to be here for a number of reasons. And one is that it has always struck me that the study of pre-Socratic philosophy has been one of the most cooperative um, areas in that people work in, and that um, I always learn lots of things and feel like. Um, Everyone, it, we're all interested in trying to figure out the unfigurable. So uh, I'm very, very pleased to be here. I'm interested in structure. Um, there's a handout. So I'm begin, I begin with the problem of structure. So I'm, I'm start out by asking you to do some mental picturing. This is not a, an experimental philosophy thought experiment. This is just some mental picturing. Okay. So. Um, Consider the cosmos at the triumph of strife, not necessarily the rule of strife, but the point at which strife has succeeded. All four of the roots are completely segregated. Similarly, and I use the word root because though I know it's not a technical term in Empedocles, What's that other word? Um, <laughs> element, yes, element is a technical term in Aristotle. And I want to avoid any Aristotelian contamination. So I'm just going to use the word root. And that just means those four things. Consider the cosmos as a triumph strife. All four of the roots are completely segregated. Similarly, consider it at the triumph of love. All four of the roots are completely mixed, such that as... Anaxagoras might have put it, none is apparent. Now, consider the cosmos as it appears now. There are sun, moon, planets, stars, the earth, seas, air, clouds, geological formations, rivers, and so on. Further, there are many species of living things, multitudinous species of plants and animals, and there are human beings and perhaps even a long-lived god or two. At the level of what's fundamentally real, i.e. metaphysically basic, they're the same things at all three points that we're attending to. Earth, water, air, fire, strife, and love. B17, B21, B26. What distinguishes the, the, the cosmoi then, the cosmos, these different periods then, is the degree of mixture and or separation of the roots and the varying levels of the influence of strife and love. In the in-between times, as we might call them, i.e. between the extremes, so this is a cycle but it's a linear, so you have to think of this as going boing boing rather than round and round. At the extremes, between the extremes, sorry, in the in-between times, the differences produce a world of structured, that is, organized entities. The nature and degree of structure or organization will differ in accordance to where in the cycles we take our sample. Less structure as we approach the extremes, and more structure as the cycle reaches the region in which there's more or less parity of strength between the forces and then moves away from this parity. So this paper is about structure. How is it that love and strife acting on the roots produce so much organization and repetition? We often focus on the developmental period. There's, of course, interest in the necklace heads and the bare arms deprived of shoulders, the man-faced ox and the ox-headed man, and so on. And then there's Aetius's description in A72 of the, the, the sequence of, of creatures. 
Yeah, when we consider our own period, at whatever point in the cycle we are, whether we're on the way to love or strife, um, I think we're in a period of increasing strife, there are two things that stand out about the cosmos, the natural world. It's diversity and it's regularity. The diversity is clear in B35, 16 to 17. When these things are mingled, the myriad kinds of mortals flowed out, fitted with all kinds of shapes, a wonder to behold. The differences in kinds of being, cacti, tall trees, and moss in the plant world, worms, snails, and lizards, fish, dolphins, squid, dogs and elements, gulls and eagles. Wondrous, but even more so is the regularity of the natural world. That sheep beget, beget sheep, and robins produce more robins, that sheep live sheepy lives, and robins are robiny. That the sun makes its predictable way across the heavens every day and around the points of the sky during each season is no less marvelous. The ancients were fascinated by monsters and odd occurrences, but the points about these phenomena is that they're so rare. That's why they are fascinating. How do we account for the regularities? No less myriad than the kinds of mortal things, and again, as Empedocles suggests, no less wondrous. Although according to Empedocles, there has been and there will be changes in the structure of the cosmos and the living things in it as the cycles progress, there's still the problem of explaining long-term, and indeed very long-term, regularities. I suggest here, and will gesture towards some arguments for the claim, I'm not saying I've got them, but I'm going to gesture in that direction, that while the forces of love and strife are clearly part of the story, a number is the general notion of an intelligible cosmos, whose workings out are to be explained by an appeal to the internal, rational, slash, intelligent natures of the six entities at work in it. This intelligible nature covers the everyday workings of all the things in the world, tides, seasons, butterflies, and ants, as much as the development and reproduction of species and the behavior of humans to some extent. A hint of this is found in the last line of an extremely puzzling fragment, as though they aren't all, be 110, for know that all things have phronesis and a share of thought. Now, being 110 is sometimes taken as part of the purificatory aspect of Empedocles' work. Whether or not they're one or two poems and how they're related is not my issue here. I take it that the cosmological and demonic aspects are related, but that one might nevertheless consider some fragments as more concerned with one aspect than another. Like others, I suggest that B110 applies to the whole of Empedocles' world and can provide a link between the two cycles. Phronesis and Noema apply equally to the cycles of the cosmos and to the life cycles of the diamonds. The problem is to work out how this is so, and as I mentioned this morning, I've been very taken with Andre Lax's interpretation and suggestions about this, but I, I, nothing particularly rides on, on this, I don't think. Okay, so love and strife is forces. So the problem of structure, this is on the handout, and this is just so they're there. I take the problem of structure, as I call it, to call it, cover both of these questions. How is it that the cosmos is an organized system of diverse entities? Why does this system maintain regularity over long periods of time? 
Now, I think the fundamental drivers of cyclic change are love and strife. As we shall see when we return to B110, the roots have intelligence and thought of their own, but as the cosmos and develops, they do not spontaneously mix and separate on their own to produce the living entities that populate the cosmos. They're pushed and pulled by love and strife. It's thinking of love and strife as producers of mixture and separation that it becomes tempting to think of them simply as forces or powers. And then I've got this, the, the official account of, uh, of love and strife here. Now, the most usual way to explicate love and strife are powers. Sorry, not love and strife. That's the question. That, that, end of paper. Okay, that's just a <laughs> The most usual way to explicate love and strife as powers is to think of them as functioning roughly as Aristotelian efficient causes, acting on roots that are roughly playing the role of Aristotelian matters. And you can find this in all kinds of explications of Empedocles written by people who don't actually work on Empedocles. <laughs> so, a second possibility is to think of love and strife as dispositional powers in the sense of dunamis, or as conceived in some contemporary accounts of powers, that is, properties directed to an end, etc. On this view, love would be the power to combine unlikes, the roots which would themselves perhaps be powers to heat and dampen. When that power of love has been manifested or has reached its end, at least for the moment, a new set of powers, i.e. different mixtures with new powers, would be present. Part of my goal in examining how Empedocles conceives of the problem of structure is to try to decide whether or not it makes sense to think of the Empedoclean system as a power structuralism or a proto-version of power structuralism. Note that even if the official account, as I'm calling it, having just lifted it out of the material that Anna sent us. I note that even if the official account holds for love and strife, this need not commit, commit us to the view that the roots are powers. The roots might be stuffs, which while they can be affected by love and strife and have certain power-like aspects, might not be completely reducible to powers. I rather suspect they're not. If this is so, then Empedocles' system is not a pure power structuralist ontology, but may have something useful to say. So what do love and strife do to the roots? The answer is often given in terms of attraction and unification by love and repulsion and segregation by strife, suggested by the shorthand claim that love produces mixtures from unlikes and strife produces the separation of unlike. Yet this can't be all there is to it as it's clear that both love and strife both mix and separate. To do her work, love pulls apart likes and mixes together unlikes. For his part, strife mixes together likes by pulling apart unlikes. This is not mere attraction or unification and mere repulsion or disunity, but a combination of actions. Here's a comparison. Electrostatic force is attractive between like charges and repulsive between opposite charges, but it's the same force working, as it were. Now, at one point in the cycle, in the universe, unity of the spiros, love has repelled strife, pushed strife out. Strife has been banished, and the unlike roots are pushed or pulled together until they're completely mixed. At, at another point, as far from the supreme mixture as, as we can get, there is unity. All the fire is consolidated, all the earth is consolidated, all the water, all the air is the point. 
that we've heard already this morning. Each is a pure, unified mass mixed and held together, I think, by the force of strife, which prevents the unlikes from mingling with uh, other unlikes. Like mixture and separation, attraction and repulsion are relative terms. Relative to the place in the cycle and to the comparative mixture that's present at any moment in time. It's important to remember that Empedocles' world, like that of all the pre-Socratics, including as David has eloquently shown, the, the pre-Socratic atomists, it's a plenum, that there is something everywhere. Any separation or repulsion is at the same time mixture or attraction. Love repulses any tendencies to segregation, while strife attracts likes to cling to one another, repulsing unlikes. Strife adding like to like is a kind of mixture, as well as a separation. I'm strife. I have two separate vials of olive oil. I separate them from the vials, pour them together, mixing them together into the bowl, i.e. I mix them. In turn, love's mixing, unlike to unlike, also requires a separation. Love separates the right amount from the cruet of vinegar and adds it to the bowl and then mixes them together. Only through the combined actions of love and strife can there be a world. As Andre Lax claims, the world as such depends for its existence upon the force of hatred, his translation of strife. A world of perfect love is no world in the proper sense of the term because a world demands differentiation which in turn supposes the presence of strife or hatred. I think this is an important point that can be underestimated. Strife has an important, indeed necessary, role to play in producing the structure of the cosmos. So there could perhaps be creative destruction, as it were, in Empedocles' world. We can add that a world of perfect strife is itself no world in the proper sense of the term either. For a world demands structured unification as well as structured differentiation. And I think both Andre Lotz and Simon have done, have pointed to the role of strife in cosmogony. So there are worlds only in the between times, those periods that occupy some position in the middle ranges of the cycle, where neither love nor strife is strong enough to overpower the work of the other. Okay, so. Now I wish to refer to this elegant diagram on the board, um, produced at great expense. Now the path of development is, is cyclical, not linear, but I've got this the way it is for a reason. Um, this is a further complication, just as there's a development of structure from the triumph of strife to the formation of the sphere, so there's a development from the, the spiros to the complete segregation. Although I accept what Dan Graham's called the oscillation view, which is the old in some sense the old traditional view, I'm not going to defend any particular view about cosmological development, including cosmogonical and zoogonical development, though I have views about this. Except a point to the obvious. One, at some point the world must be structured in such a way that it looks the way it does to us now. And two, at times other than now, and rather a long way away in both directions, temporally speaking, the world structure is radically different from the way it is now. And that's what this structure, this diagram is supposed to have. So um, I, the lines were straight on the one I originally did. But so it, so it seems to me that it's, if you think of the green as 
strife increasing and the red is love increasing, that it's going to be in these middle places where you're going to get the kind of structure that's possible because you're going to have fairly equal um, forces. And I'll say more about this. Now, the reason this diagram is the way it is, is I think it helps to think of the cycles as alternating crescendos and diminuendos, which is what these are uh, in, in music. And they're happening at the same time, as it were. So the strength of these forces is going to vary with time. As strife builds up, love diminishes. At its strongest or loudest point, strife is in control. Again, at love's strongest or loudest point, it's in control while strife has been diminished and penned up. Yet at certain periods, their strength will be at or near about equal levels. This means that there's a near equilibrium at least at a couple of points. And by near, I, you know, how, how many thousands of years? Uh, it's in these periods that a structured world such as we are in is most likely to develop. It's also important to keep in mind that there's change and mixture at all points, except at the extremes. Yet for large swaths of time, it's unlikely that we would speak of these changes in degrees of mixture as worlds. As you approach either and it's not clear you've actually got a world there in the sense of, of, that we would talk about a world. At the extremes, there's simply not enough differentiation down here. And at the other end, there's not enough integration. Almost all of Empedocles' accounts of the double tail begin with the move from the reign of strife to that of love and then back again. What we might take as the model appears in lines 1 to 8 of B17, which is Graham 41, which is Inwood 25, and Wright 8. <laughs> you want me to say that again? B17, Graham 41, Inwood 25, Wright 8. It would be so nice if we could all agree on something. Despite the ubiquity of the theme of unification, this is the double tail, and I'm, I'm assuming most of us could probably recite it, or, so I'm going to not read it. Despite the ubiquity of the theme of unification followed by separation, and again, as Simone has put this in a nice paper, Aristotle's evidence suggests that the world that Empedocles thinks of as ours, the world as it is now, is a world that belongs to the increase of strife. Yet this does not mean that love is not active. For the move from one extreme to the other will involve periods when both of the two forces are able to affect the roots. Although at these times, it's limited, each is limited by the presence of the other, each is not completely thwarted by the other. From the standpoint of causation and the structure of the world, some structure and some worlds will no doubt appear in both periods, in the move to love as well as in the move to strife. I'm also trying to think about powers as dispositions, forces as powers at work. I think it's helpful to keep those two things separate. So you can, you can have powers that aren't being activated, but while they're active, they are, they are being forces. Moreover, cyclic development of worlds neither entails nor requires that the worlds in the two parts of the cycle be mirror images. Cyclicity is not like a take that runs forward and then back. Rather, development always depends on what happened earlier, 
And given the role of chance and the differences in the originating states, and perhaps even this is where some of Oliver's views about how, how, how they're, it's, they're not symmetrical, the systems, then quite different entities and organizations could occur, although certain regularities may persist in both cosmogonies. So who knows what might happen is basically my view. Further, given the actions of the daimos, who are in some sense in the world and doing things, which may add to the harmony and disharmony of the world, we may not know just how things will develop. If people go around sacrificing lots and lots and lots of cattle, then there are going to be many more cattle parts to be broken down. If they don't, then there aren't. It's going to depend. There, there are laws, but they're not. It, it's not that things could not be different. Things will be the way they are. You can explain why they are the way they are, but they might have been different. Consider the beings of fragments B57, B60, and B61, the heads without necks, the shoulderless arms, the eyes without foreheads, twisted feet, etc. Where do they fit in the story? Now the evidence is that these fragments, as well as B96 and B98, which I, I call the recipe fragments, the, the blood and bone fragments, um, and, B, and crucially B35, belong to a period when love is gaining strength, but strife is still himself quite strong. B35, I think, support, uh, suggests a point fairly early in that period. Yet I'm not convinced that the fragments really give us enough evidence for a clear picture of the structure of the complete cycles. We simply may not be able to reconstruct what happens at any given point in the moves between the complete segregation and complete mixture and back again. And this is the point Anna made this morning. This is not necessarily to claim that Empedocles did not himself have a clear and complete picture, though he might not have. He might have had a view. It's rather, we just don't have the evidence. The details in the explanations of the structure of the eye or breathing surely indicates that Empedocles provided more detailed information about many more things than we have. But I don't think we, we have to, Oliver, find some more stuff. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, on to the roots and thought, impulse, and desire. So I'm going to leave love and strife for the moment and turn to the roots. B6, which is gram 26, inward 12, right 7, uh, introduces them with divine names, while at B1760, again, um, B17, Gram 41, Inwood 25, Rite 8, they're announced more prosaically along with Love and Strike. So B6, here first the four roots of all things, Bright Zeus, Life-Giving Hera, Adonius and Nestus who wither tears, moistens the mortal spring. B17, I'll tell a double tale. At one time it grew apart to be one alone for many, but another it grew apart once more to be many from one. Fire and water and earth and immense height of air, a cursed strife apart from them, balanced in every way, and love among them equal in length and breadth. Now, B17, along with the accounts of love molding, casting, or gluing the roots in B96, B98, and B34, and I think love's also a pretty mean cook, uh, can indicate that the roots are in themselves inert. Mixture and separation might be thought of on the basis of this 
as a matter being pushed or pulled by the force of strife or love. But B6 suggests otherwise. Calling Hera Ferus Bios and saying that Nestus moistens with tears. Um, Empedocles intimates that the roots have inner force, that they have tendencies to behave in certain ways, and that they may even have emotions that are in some sense like those that move us. To be sure, the main actors in the motions and changes in the roots are, I think, love and strife. For instance, in B85, I suspect that flame encounters a bit of earth because it's been pushed along by, by love or strife. But the roots are not utterly passive. These tendencies are not, I think, to be conceived as proto-Aristotelian natural motions. For crucially, Empedocles' roots seem to have thought, impulse, and desire. In addition to B6, which might seem rather slight evidence, there's B110, Gram 22, Inwood 16, Wright 100. For if planting these down firmly in your crowded mind, however you want to translate that difficult word, you keep watch on them kindly with pure thoughts. They'll surely accompany you throughout all the ages. You will gain many others from them, for these will grow into each character in that way, which is the nature of each. But if indeed you reach out for others, such as the countless wretched things that come among men and blunt the thoughts, they will straightaway abandon you as time rolls round, yearning to reach their own beloved kind, for know that all things have intelligence and a share of thought. Now, nothing about this fragment is obvious, yet we can determine that Pausanias is being exhorted not only to remember what he's being told, he's to take these things to heart. If he does so, then in some way yet to be determined, these teachings will stay with him and both nourish and generate new knowledge and understanding. If he doesn't, he lets himself be distracted by humdrum and trivial things like administrative duties and so on, then the teachings will do Pausanias no good. They will abandon him. Now, it's not merely that Pausanias will forget them. Rather, these things will forsake him, yearning to escape and reach their own kind. Now, how are we to understand this? One fairly obvious thought is there's an impulse to change in each root. What gives plants the desire to grow and the ability to take in nutrition and causes animals to be animated is an urge that's inherent in the roots. In B62, the Ulafuis uh, Tukoi rise up in the earth, i.e. from the surface of our earth, not merely earth as a root, because having both water and fire in them, these bits of roots desired to reach their own kind as they're being separated by strife. So they get liberated, as it were, and then they move, I think. Fire sent them up, striving to reach its light. I take it that this occurs at some point after the breakup of the sphere when the force of strife has gained enough strength to loosen the mixture that love had produced. The lessening of the length of the strength of love allows like roots to mix, and as the force of strife increases and the bonds of Aphrodite give way somewhat, 
Roots begin to move, driven by their internal impulses and encouraged by strife to find their own kind. Now, I think there are three sorts of forces at work here, and that's the middle thing on, or that's, that's on your handout. So there th I think there are three sorts of forces at work here. There is, first, the interplay of love and strife, whereby the strengthening of one is the weakening of the other. Now, that doesn't mean they're the same thing. It just means that as love increases, what that means is strife is decreasing. This interchange is governed, I think, by the broad oath of mutual succession through time in B30. Not, I'm not talking about the B115 at this point, but the broad oath of mutual succession in B through time. Again, a comparison. Electrostatic forces vary with the distance of separation of charges, but the law according to which these charges operate does not itself change with time. But as the, the particles move, the forces gain and weaken. That doesn't mean anything about the laws governing them. Second, there is the yearning by the roots for their like or their beloved kind. And finally, there's a third sort of activity which is most familiar to us in our own thought and intelligence. This last includes the activity of love in mixing ingredients to form living things, in which love persuades unlikes to mix with others. The roots go into the mixtures not unwillingly, but willingly, and fire is persuaded to harden what has been handed to it. Thus at B35, 5 to 6, it's said that in her love, or by her, they combine to be one alone, not straight away, uk afar, but being willing, thelema, joining each from its own place. Earth in B96 receives or obtains water and fire, and all are joined by harmony. This implies that the roots become willing partners in the construction of animals, plants, and their parts, even though their original impulse is to reach their own kind. Okay, so those are three different things. The first force we've already seen at work in the big cycles, as I'll call them. The second, the yearning of like for like, may be something like an inner impulse to natural place, as I, as I said this, and B62 suggests this. The fire has an impulse to join other fire, perhaps that fire that's already been released. The fact that water is still mixed with the fire causes the rise of water, and water too may have played a role, as it would, if unimpeded, rise above the earth. So we might think of this motion as mechanical, as inherent in the roots. Yet I suspect this is too Aristotelian a view. In Empedocles' account, we might arrive at the same conclusion, earth goes down, but the root to this claim is rather different. Empedocles clearly thinks that saying, as we sometimes do, that fire wants to move up or that water seeks its own level is not just a figure of speech but that fire is in some sense aware of where it is at any moment and maintains and acts on desires to move. It's in some way percipient and capable of desire. I find a hint of this, maybe, in B102, where we get not only does everything, and earlier we've had everything has intelligence in front of us, 
Here we've got everything has a share of breath and smell, which seems to imply a kind of um, sensation, awareness, or whatever. I, I, I'm not putting anything on that fragment. Mean, that, that's just sitting there by itself, that fragment. So, but it, it's suggestive. This leads us to the third sort of impulse. Because the roots can become willing to mix, they're capable of being persuaded. So they have desires, that's, that's two. The third one is they can be persuaded. Because the roots can become willing to mix, they're capable of being persuaded, persuaded accepting the overtures of love. This suggests that their phronesis is at work here. They're capable of listening to, as Aristotle says, you know, like listening to your father and doing what he said. Um, the closest parallel not is not Aristotle, I think. If, if even in minimal ways, there's the sense that the roots can choose to be mixed. The closest parallel is not Aristotle, it's Heraclitus. The notion that the Logos is an intelligent force guiding the changes that constitute the cosmos. And that the, the, the forces in, in, in Heraclitus submit to the Logos. In what does persuading and being persuaded consist? Now, at one end, Peter Kingsley seems to think of the persuasion of love as an overpowering and damaging erotic force. A part of his view in which love is a force of destruction. That's not my view. I prefer to see the activities of love and strife, as well as those of the roots, as acquiescence in the law-like behavior of the cosmos. The force of necessity in this sense is natural necessity, things acting in accordance with the laws of nature, with the added idea that the laws of nature necessitate the cycles between extremes of mixture and separation. If one begins by analyzing this kind of necessity, or needfulness. This is this is one. I'm taking this over from the the notion of chay in Parmenides, which I don't think is necessary. It, it is necessary that, but it's needful that. It ought to be the case that. So this no, notion of needfulness, not neediness, on the model of the force of namas in guiding the behavior of humans, and including the roles of harmony and discourse in determining these nomoi for humans, it would not be difficult to then move on to see the cosmos as a system governed by laws where the governed might be willing or unwilling partners in that system. This is similar to the cosmic system of Anaximander, for instance. But Empedocles complicates the system by making explicit the intelligible as intelligent aspect of such a view. And at the bottom of the handout I have from the OED, archaic senses of intelligible, which also connect with contemporary senses of intelligible. That is, where intelligible means both capable of being understood, what we think of it, and as itself intelligent. So in, um, uh, da, 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 in 1509, we find in, in Hawes both uses of intelligible, meaning both intelligent and capable of being understood. So, and I think Empedocles, like many other of the pre-Socratics, um, thinks of the cosmos as intelligible and intelligent. I think that's part of what's going on with Anaxagoras. 
Now, by this I mean, as I said, the now archaic sense of intelligible. Now, note that in Anaximander's world, for instance, things pay recompense for their injustice. Where does the injustice come from, if not from the overreaching or pleonexia of some part of the system? Anaxagoras' noose governs the system. It has all gnome. But it's unclear that the things it governs are themselves capable of perception or thought. This is why noose and soul are linked in Anaxagoras, I think, because he's got to have a way to get noose into things, to, to move them if, if they're self-movers, as it were. Empedocles is more economical in that the percipient intelligent aspect is already automatically present in everything, in the roots as well as in love and strife. And this is just a throw, throw away. Might this be why Empedocles doesn't talk about salt very much? He doesn't need to, in some sense, in the way that Anaxagoras needs to. Okay. Four. How do love and strife move the roots? I'm, things speed up as we go along here, so I won't be too much longer. In thinking about the changes that occur during the cycles, it helps to distinguish between the developing macrostructure of the cosmos and the developments of the various microstructures of the living beings within it. This is not the distinction between cosmological and daimonic developments. Rather, the persuasive aspect of love and of strife is part of the microcosmic changes. They are at work in this way when living things are being produced as the cycles are moving on, or the crescendos and diminuendos are moving around in a circle. So at this point, there's already some differentiation of cosmic masses, and there's enough stuff either desegregated as love regains strength or deintegrated as strife regains strength available to build vegetable and animal bodies. So how do we account for the large structure of the cosmos? For that, I think we need to look to love and strife as cosmic forces whose waxing and waning control over the whole produces the rotary motions that separate the cosmic masses and form the heavenly bodies and produce the movement of the heavens. This is the first sort of force that I mentioned earlier. At the beginning of each period of movement, either after the breakup of the spirals, why love has enough influence to maintain the mixture, or B, when love can begin the reintegration of the fully separated roots, as strife gives up his total control, there is no cosmos. If by that we mean anything other than the separated masses or the mixture, complete mixture. And I've said that there's a sense in which that's not really a cosmos. It's only when there's been enough motion introduced into each of the two extremes to begin to allow for differentiated heavenly bodies that a cosmos as such begins to form. As cosmic formation progresses, the forces of love and strife become less disproportionate. Nevertheless, the rotary motion caused by their opposition is still necessary to keep the cosmos as a whole going um, in the sense of the great movements of the spheres, of the fixed stars, and so on. Moreover, it's likely that the setting and rising of the sun, as well as weather patterns, can be attributed to the pushing and pulling forces of love and strife. Once the cycles are further developed, that is, more towards the middle in either direction, love and strife are less unequal and the smaller bodies can begin to form. 
These will all be all the various forms of life, each with its own desires, impulses, and thoughts, however rudimentary, and the other two kinds of force may come more fully into play, where you, the roots are persuaded, and then as creatures are formed that have intelligence, then they, they do certain things. The earliest periods of life would overlap with the earlier stages of cosmic development. Um, in A70, Aetius says that according to Empedocles, the first of the living things, the trees were the first of the living things to grow up from the earth before the sun was unfolded and before day and night were separated from one another. They're parts of the earth, just as embryos in the abdomen are parts of the womb. I take this to mean that as the protocosmos was developing, earth, fire, water, and air were not fully arranged, but there was enough of each available for plants to form and live. Even if the sun has not yet unfolded, there could still be light enough from the fire in the developing heavens for plants to grow. It's at this point where more complex and differentiated organisms develop that the more persuasive aspects of love in the recipe fragments could come into play. So in the beginning, i.e. at either beginning point in a movement, the forces will work primarily in pushers of pullers, not as builders. This is because at that point the roots are not in a condition to be shaped either because they're still held tightly clumped together by strife, even as the clumps begin to loosen, or because they're far too diffuse in the mixture of the recently broken apart spirals. At this point, love and strife must, as it were, concentrate on getting the ingredients into the proper intermediate state so they can be worked on. I think this period may be fairly gradual, and I think that's the process that's described in B35, lines 2 to 17 where you've got um, strife being held back and things running forward and, and, and so on. That, that's how I would read that. Um, despite the straightaway hypsa in line 14 of B35, I think we should take this passage as an indication of gradualism. Did I say B17 earlier? I meant B35. Yeah, okay, thank you. Um, in line 6, we're told that this happens afar and given a reason why. Though love is gaining strength and pursuing strife outward, uh, strife moves gradually. Some of, his root, some of his limbs stand fast. And as this gradual withdrawal occurs, the unlike roots become willing to join together. Although myriad kinds of mortals flow out, it's not clear that at this point what's emerging are plants and animals or their predecessor, but simply early mixtures. Note that the, early, the fully separated roots under strife, which are forced apart and mixed by the blameless surge of love, count as immortal. It's in being mixed that they become mortal. This shouldn't surprise us, as it's exactly the point that's made several times. To be mortal is, mortal is to be a mixed item that comes to be through mixture and as such to be something that can be separated, i.e. die, in scare quotes. Even the long-lived gods count as this sort of thing, as in the, they, they appear in the painting analogy of B23. One important thing to notice about B35 is the sheer oddness of the language. If we suppose that alternation between love and strife is meant by Empedocles as a value-laden picture of the cyclical triumph of good and evil, again, is a view that a number of people have taken. Both love and strife are blameless 
well contented with their allotted roles. The thing that make, things that makes are said to exchange paths. This suggests that the cosmic cycles are not moral events, but are morally neutral. There's a kind of inevitability at work, but this is not a normative necessity in the ethical sense. It's a necessity in the scientific sense, seems to me. At B30, the return of strife is described. Strife was nourished in his limbs and leapt up to lay hold of his office as the time was fulfilled, which had been fixed for each in turn by a broad oath of mutual succession. It could be tempting to see the broad oath here as the same oath at work in the oracle of necessity that governs the daimons. But I think the necessities in the cosmological and the daimonic cycles are different, and Catherine has talked about this as well. The cosmos working itself endlessly among the cycle is simply the way things are. And I should tell you another thing. There is no birth of any of mortal things, nor end of destructive death. There's only mixture and separation. And um, when these are mixed together, then B9, these are mixed together, they come into the ether as a man or kind of wild beast, etc. Again. As these two fragments hint, there will be a moral story for us humans, but it's not the purely cosmic story. It has something to do with attitudes to what's going on, but it's not just the cosmic story. Strife has as much of a role to play as love, and as noted above, the Spiros is not a world in any sense that has genuine meaning for us. Again, as, as, as Lack says, neither human beings nor daimones aim at disappearing into the sphere of love, no more than into the world of, world of strife. You know, what, what, what do you want to do? I want to disappear forever. You know, I mean, that, that, that's, that's not the... I mean, there are people who would claim that, but that's not. So while it may be true that love is the creative force in the sense it's the love that combines ingredients or brings together animals to produce others, strife has to be present to maintain the discrimination and make it possible that they're individuals. B23, this is the painter analogy that we've already been talking about, suggests this subtly. The verbs, as a number of people have pointed out, in lines 2, 4, and 6 are duels, which I take to mean that they're two painters, love and strife. So the mixing of more or less, separate the paints from the supply, mix the colors, blend on the wall, or I leave it to the experts to figure out about group painting that I I, I, I don't know, but I think it involves both love and strife, so how, how, exactly how it works. If you are unconvinced that strife is necessary for the production of mortal things that count as viable structured individuals, consider letting a three-year-old loose with four pots of differently colored paints. Eventually, all the paint gets on the wall, or the paper, or the child, and the result is a complete mixture a grayish, muddled mess of merged paints, which look, if not like the Spiros, certainly like Anaxagoras's original mixture. A lack of discrimination can be as sterile, from our point of view, as complete segregation, the state of things with strife. Structure and organization that constitutes a cosmos requires both. There's still one more thing before we finally get back to structure, which I have not forgotten. And that's the question of thought and, and intelligibility that I raised earlier. Now, scholars have been puzzled by Empedocles' claims about thought and perception. 
in the roots and in humans. And the situation well captured in Tony Long's classic, Thinking and Sense Perception in Empedocles, Mysticism or Materialism. Um, now Long, following claims of Aristotle and Theophrastus, says, okay, perception is like by like, and Empedocles, like everybody else, fails to distinguish between thinking and perceiving, he, and he opts, Long opts for materialism in the physics and mysticism in the purifications. Well, that was 1966, I think. It was a long time ago, and a lot more people have been, been a lot more interested in Empedocles, and you know, a lot of and some nifty stuff has turned up. So I'm not disagreeing with you know, not rejecting Tony's view because it's old. I'm rejecting it because I think things are more a little more complicated, and I think he thinks that now too. Um, we're now in a better position to appreciate that we cannot split Empedocles' view quite that neatly. We might be able to separate things, but you can't do the old dichotomy anymore. Uh, nor, as I have argued elsewhere, should we be quite so sure that any attribution of materialism or physicalism, whatever it is we think that means, hmm. and I'm not at all sure any of us from the pre-Socratics to right now know what that means, is appropriate when thinking about early Greek philosophy. There remains a real question. What should we say about the phenomena of thought, perception, and desire in the roots, in mixed or mortal things, in love and strife, and perhaps in the diamonds? Love and strife are powers. The one can exert force on likes that causes them to separate and unlikes to mix. That's love. The other, strife, exerts forces on unlikes, causing them to separate and likes to mix. I don't think there's any good reason to think of these forces as bodies. Everybody can faint now. The powers of these forces are relative to one another and wax and wane in turn as the cycles proceed. Yet, like the roots, love and strife seem to be percipient and to have intentions. As we've seen, Empedocles attributes intelligence and a share of thought to the roots and thus to every mortal thing. This would include trees and men and women and beasts and birds and water-nourished fish and long-lived gods, highest and honors. And, one presumes, sunflowers, octopuses, butterflies, and worms. The mechanism of sensation is presumably through pores. But that doesn't explain the conscious recognition of objects, nor does it explain thought, especially those far-reaching thoughts that move beyond sense perception. It's a problem of consciousness. B109 is the main fragment here, although it doesn't give us an unambiguous picture of either sensation or thought. It's B109, Gram 158, Inwood 17, Wright 77. For by earth we see earth, by water, water, e by ether, heavenly ether, and again fire by destroying fire, love by love, and strife by dreadful strife. The first two lines might be thought to support the like-by-like -like claim, but the third line surely does not provide a sensory analysis of our understanding of love and strife. B17, in B17, Empedocles specifically claims that love is not to be seen with the eyes, but rather that our awareness of her is from our own experiences of attraction combined with our powers of understanding. Gaze on her with your mind, not of. Don't sit idle with dazed eyes. Since eyes are useless for gaining knowledge of love, we must extrapolate from experience 
And this isn't just having more sensations. This isn't just piling up more matter, in, in, in more material experiences. It's that doing something with it. Moreover, even if we accept B109 as evidence of sensation, of like by like, it must also be the case that the mechanism of sensation doesn't produce perception of like by like. The effluence is composed of the roots affecting my sense organs don't guarantee that I'll perceive something in a, in a particular way. Empedocles himself seems to recognize this. In B21, he suggests we have no direct perception of the pure roots, but I can use our perception or sensation of the sun, air, rain, and the earth as evidence for his claims about the reality of the roots. Further, any knowledge or understanding we may have about the divine spiros can't be grounded in, in, in sensation. It's thought alone that could be efficacious here. It's not attainable to approach it with eyes or grasp it with our hands, through which indeed the greatest pathway of persuasion for humans leads to the mind. That's B133, Inwood 9, 109, right 96. Empedocles does not, I think, suppose that thinking or gazing with the mind is merely a particular composition of the body affected by material effluences from outside the body, nor is failure to pay attention, as suggested by the exhortation to, to attend. It's not go out there and sense more stuff, it's pay attention. Consciousness and awareness are for him not reducible to material affluences, partially because the stuff, the roots, are not themselves merely inert. They too are aware. Now, I'm kind of loath to call this panpsychism because my weirdness bells start going off, <laughs> and partly because I'm not sure what panpsychism is supposed to be, but you know, maybe. There's a kind of omni-awareness on the model of the cos, uh, the kind of omni-awareness of the cosmos on the model that I find in Xenophanes, Heraclitus, and Parmenides. The cosmos is aware of itself. On this model, the problem's not that some entities think and perceive and that others don't. The question is why one entities think and perceive so badly, uh, since all have intelligence and a share of thought. One answer must have to do with the fineness and completeness of a given mixture. Another must have to do with the willingness to attend. What thoughts are present at the period of strife? Is there only the self-directed awareness of itself by the collected mass of each root? And in the spiros, you could clearly have the whole thing aware of itself, but where you've got this segregation, it's interesting to think, what are they thinking about? The complete mixture is, is the divine thinking bodily spiros, whose similarity to the, the similarity to the bodiless, all thinking god of Xenophanes, B23 to 26, is, I think, obvious. He's not fitted out with a human head, nor from his back to two arms sprout, nor feet, nor swift knees, nor hairy genitals, but he's only a holy and ineffable frame, swift thoughts darting throughout the entire cosmos. Last paragraph. It's now time to try to pull all this together. I began with two questions about structure. How is it the cosmos is an organized system of diverse entities, and why does this system maintain regularity over long periods of time? I suggested it's the impulse and thoughts of the roots and of the forces of love and strife that ultimately answer these questions. 
Love and strife, working out the plans or laws of the cosmos, provide the major structural aspects. The mechanism of, uh, oh, good, I'm actually on the last page. Uh, the, 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 let me start again. The forces of love and strife, working out the plan or laws of the cosmos, provide the major structural aspects of the cosmos. The circular motion of the worlds created by the opposing forces produce the masses of roots that are worked up. Once living things are complex enough, they can re reproduce and continue as long as the balance between love and strife, and that can be even a certain kind of imbalance, but it's not, a, not, a, not at the extremes, um, is maintained. When the imbalance becomes so great that the one utterly dominates the other, all living things are either pulled apart into their parts, which then continue to combine into complete segregation, or they're forced to blend and melt into one another until there's no differentiation. In either case, structure is lost. Where do the laws of nature that I've appealed to in rather a hand-waving way come from? Well, that's an interesting question. I suggest that they are somehow contained in those darting thoughts of the ineffable holy mind that remain in the cosmos as the spiros breaks up. It's this that's the source of the broad oath of mutual succession, and it's the interplay of the forces and the roots governed by the oath that allows for the gaining and losing of power by love and strife, and that constitutes the necessity of the development of the natural world. Let's stop. Thank you.